0: This morning, we're going to be talking about Jesus. Well, duh. (laughs) Probably seems like it should be really obvious since you're sitting in a Christian church right now. We always talk about Jesus. Nobody came here expecting to hear a sermon on Conway Twitty. And that's true, but more specifically, today we're not just talking about Jesus. We're continuing the series, just like Andy mentioned, on the Trinity. And so we're focusing on God the Son, Jesus Christ. So last week, Pastor Andy Doyle began this series with, yeah, <laughs> did you just woo for yourself? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's like pathetic and really inspiring at the same time. I'm impressed. Uh, uh, so we saw last week how God is not just some impersonal cosmic force. He's not just Some being out there who just kinda got bored to create our universe on a whim. He is a complex being who is love. And throughout the Bible we see evidence that God is one God, but he's one God who's made up of three distinct persons who are each fully God. It's complex, it's a mystery, it's impossible to describe the comparisons because nothing else in our universe works the way God does. It is a complete and total brain melter. Just when you start thinking you've got a grasp on it, it slips away again. Even more so than the convoluted story arc of the Lego Ninjago movie. But scripture shows the Trinity to be true. Each unique person of the Trinity, that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, are individual in that the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and so on. You get the point. But the Father is fully God. And the Son is is fully God. And the Holy Spirit is fully God. Jesus is not just 33.3% God. He's all God. He's completely God. And the same goes for the Father and the Holy Spirit. You tracking so far? Yeah. Oh, behave. Okay. That was, that was Andy's attempted new catchphrase last week, and it didn't really work for him, so I thought I'd give it a try. Um, Probably a bad idea for me too. So, yes, baby! Yeah, yeah, baby. Yeah, right. baby. Lesson learned, moving on. Um we, we kind of run out of church appropriate catchphrases from that movie after a while, so we gotta head on with the sermon. So the very nature of God is being three in one. And that enables him to be love. Why? Because he can give and receive love all on his own. It's not some selfish, inward focused, aren't I just the elephant's adenoids, I'm awesome sort of love. It's not like the one-on-one intimate, like puppy love of, like high school relationship where it's just the two of them and they don't want anybody else around. It's not like that. It's this totally pure, totally transcendent love that pours out to other people and it's received back. And out of that overflowing love, God, that's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they created our they he, created our universe and us to share that love. We are here because God shares his love. Now, God the Son is Jesus, and that's who we're talking about today, that person of the Trinity. Now, something that adds to a lot of confusion around the Trinity are those terms, Father and Son, because, again, we don't have anything in our universe that works or functions or exists the way God does. The way we always see these terms is that a father exists first as a male who is not a father. Then he becomes a father only after a child is born or adopted. So here on earth, if there's a son, he's younger than the father. He was created after the father. And clearly he did not even exist back when the father was toilet papering his math teacher's house back in ninth grade. That's not how God works. God, the father, is eternally father. There was no point when he wasn't Father God. Jesus is eternally the Son. There's no time when Jesus wasn't God the Son. There was no time when the Son didn't exist, so that means there was no time that the Father wasn't a Father. So there was no point when Jesus was not God the Son. And oh look, I've gone cross eyed So why this terminology? Why Father and Son if it's so confusing? If they're both eternal beings with no beginning or end, why are we calling them Father and Son? Because the terms father and son actually are immensely helpful for us to understand other aspects of the character of God. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But the point to start from is God's fatherhood has no beginning or end. And Jesus' sonship has no beginning or end. Now, here's what the Bible says about Jesus' eternal nature. If you go to John 1, 1 through 3, I forgot to get Cassie the references, so they're not going to be on the screens. But, you know, if you've got a Bible on your phone, it'll be on your screen. So... John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that is talking about Jesus when it says the Word. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So now it compounds even more, because God the Son is also called the Word of God. I mean, he's got a ton of nicknames as you go through the Bible. But this is an important one. And the Bible is also called the Word of God. So as a result, the Bible is not just a book. It's not just words on a page. It's a representation of the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ. That is alive. I'm not going to dive really deep into that aspect of God the Son this morning. But it's important that we understand this verse tells us that Jesus was there before anything we know of was ever created. And everything was created through him. So this is really amazing to think of because that means the creation account, when God made everything back in Genesis, there's Jesus. He wasn't actually called Jesus until the time that he came to earth, and we see him in the Bible in the New Testament. But that was him. Just like God the Father, Jesus, God the Son, existed eternally before creation. Father and Son are terms for us to understand their roles. The way these two persons of the Godhead operate with and complement each other. Jesus was always there. So what was God doing? God the Father and God the Son. What were they doing before creation? That's a great question. And I'm going to tell you, we don't know. (laughs) But we do know that Jesus was there. And we know that God was love even then. And you might be thinking, This is kind of confusing. So if God really is this all-knowing, all-powerful being, why doesn't he just explain or show himself to us in a way that we can easily understand? And that seems like a fair question. It reminds me of a scene in the 1990s movie, The Mothman Chronicles, where Richard Gere, he's playing this character who has discovered these spooky beings, that maybe they're aliens, maybe they're interdimensional beings, and he's talking about it with this other guy who made the same uh, discovery. And so he says to him, He says, I think we can assume that these entities are more advanced than us. Why don't they just come right out and tell us what's on their minds? His colleague replies, you're more advanced than a cockroach. Have you ever tried explaining yourself to one? Now, thank God, that's not our situation. Our God does not consider us lowly cockroaches. (laughs) He is loving. He loves us. And he has a deep desire for an intimate, compassionate, family-level relationship with every single one of us the gift of his word, the Bible, Jesus coming to live on this earth and relating to us directly as one of us and his communication to us through the Holy Spirit are him reaching out to us, inviting us, explaining himself to us, drawing us into learning and knowing more about him. It's just that we don't have the capacity with the limitations of our earthly brains to wrap our minds around the majesty and the complexity of what God really is. But it is a work in progress, and he invites us into it. Now, as Andy mentioned last week in 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve, it says about when Christ returns, it says, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. That's talking about us coming to a full understanding of God's eternal love. That's what he's pulling us into. So it's a process of knowing more about him. And eventually we're going to be able to get past the limitations that we have here on earth. I apologize if I'm going a little bit quick. We had a lot of important stuff to do earlier. So if it feels like you're drinking from the fire hose right now, I apologize. But we've already established that Jesus was always God the Son. We see how everything was made through him and by him in John 1.1. And we actually see him all through the Old Testament interacting with people. This is what theologians refer to as the pre-incarnate Christ. That's just a fancy way of saying it was Jesus back before we started calling him Jesus. So here are some examples to back this up. In John 1.18, it says, No man has ever seen God at any time except the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father. This book of the Bible is a New Testament gospel about Jesus. So obviously people had seen Jesus before. They'd seen the Son. It's saying that nobody has ever seen God the Father. Well, 1 John 4.12 also says, No one has ever seen God at any time. But if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Now in contrast, the Old Testament says that Moses met with God face to face. It also says that God told Moses, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. It says that Jacob saw God appearing as a man. It says Samson's parents were terrified when they realized they had seen God. But later in the Bible, it says no human being has ever seen God the Father except Jesus. So what gives Popular opinion is, these appearances of God in the Old Testament were Jesus. It was God the Son. He's God the Son. So if he shows up and says, hello, I'm God, and I love you, that is a 100% accurate statement. Somebody could come away and say, I just saw God, because he's God the Son. That's a different personage than God the Father. So it's quite possible that he was all through the Old Testament, There are a lot of people who think he was even the one who was in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even when he wasn't literally appearing in the Old Testament, God the Son was still being talked about all through the Old Testament in prophecy after prophecy describing the coming Messiah who was going to bring salvation for humanity because of God's love for us and his desire to fix our brokenness. So the point is, Jesus was around and he was involved in the course of human history from the beginning, before the beginning. He was leading us, guiding us, protecting, loving people from the very beginning and before. Now, Father God is love. And it was out of this overflow of love that he created our universe to further share that love with us. Now, God the Son is love, just like Father God is. And it was out of his love that he came to earth to rescue us and expand the family of God. He wants to grow the family. He wants to share the love. That's their motivation. C.S. Lewis wrote, I like C.S. Lewis a lot. You might have heard of him. uh, A bunch of other Christians kind of turn into fanboys of his as well. Something he wrote says, The whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten, which was given, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the Father as he does, and the Holy Spirit will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. Getting brought into the family and being like Jesus. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That's like saying Daddy. It's deep family language. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit That we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. It's putting us onto the same playing field as him. That's incredible. And that's accomplished by Christ bringing us into the family. So how did he and how does he bring us into God's family? Let's take a look at this. So first, we're going to do a crash course on why Jesus needed to come. We have all sinned, just like Adam and Eve did. Every single one of us has knowingly sinned. We chose to sin at some point, even though we knew it was against God's wishes. We had a choice in front of us. I can do this, which is what God wants me to do, or I can do this, and we made a bad choice. That's sin. Every single one of us has done that at some point in our lives. Sin horribly broke us and the entire universe. Because of our severe brokenness, We had no hope, ever, of getting back into a right relationship with a perfect, holy God on our own. So God's rescue plan for us was to send Jesus, God the Son, to come to earth. He was born as a human being like us. He lived a totally sinless life, meaning he was a human who was not separated from God. Yet he sacrificed himself in our place so that we could be saved from an eternity apart from our loving Father God. He loves us enough to grant us his holiness and righteousness. And because of that, we get back into right standing with God again forever. That's the gospel. (laughs) That's good news. So the fact that Jesus is an eternal being, the fact that he has always been there even before time began, we have to take that from scripture or we have to take that from receiving a revelation from the Holy Spirit about that. But the life and ministry of Jesus here on earth, we have solid evidence from history to support that. I want to dive into that really quickly. Will Durant is an author who made a Pulitzer Prize winning documentary on the historical accuracy of Jesus. And here's what he said. Actually, he said something like this. Will talks like a really stuffy scholar, so I paraphrase. But he said this. The Christian evidence for Christ starts with the letters written by Paul. That's letters in the New Testament. These are universally accepted as being genuine. No one questions the existence of Paul or his repeated meetings with Peter, James, and John. And Paul enviously says that these men knew Christ in the flesh. The Bible frequently refers to the Last Supper and the Crucifixion as real events. Things that seem like contradictions in the Bible are minuscule. They are never on anything of substance. On the essentials of Christianity, the Gospels agree remarkably well and form a consistent portrait of Christ. The New Testament has been tested for authenticity so severely that a hundred ancient historical figures, for example, Hammurabi, David, and Socrates, would fade into legend if they were tested in the same way. Despite the prejudices of evangelists, the Gospels record many incidents that people merely crafting a story would have concealed, such as the competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom, them abandoning Jesus at his arrest, Peter's denial of Jesus, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, mentioning that his skeptics thought he was possibly insane, his early uncertainty to his mission, his confessions of ignorance about the future, his moments of anguish, his despairing cry on the cross. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them, that a few simple men should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality. So lofty and ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood, would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the gospel. After two centuries of high criticism, the life, character, and teachings of Jesus Christ have not been disproven, and are the most fascinating feature of the history of Western man. Here's something interesting. Will Durant, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer who wrote this, was an atheist though it is said that he accepted Christ at the very end of his life. But what does that tell us, him writing this? It tells us that credentialed historians, even those opposed to Christianity, do not deny that Jesus existed. It's staggering that even after these bold admissions of the evidence that supports Jesus being God, some people still don't come to faith, though. C.S. Lewis also famously made the Lord, liar, lunatic argument. If you're not familiar with that, I suggest you look it up. I'm not going to go deep into that but essentially saying that we have to accept Jesus as either a complete raving madman, an evil, devious liar, or else he's the Lord God he claimed to be. We don't have the option of saying he was merely a good moral teacher, and we don't have the option of ignoring historical evidence and claiming he didn't exist. So we know the Bible's reliable. And in these gospels that are reliable, Jesus declares himself as the Son of God and tells us he wants to help us know God. He represents God the Father to us, shows us God the Father's love, shows us God the Father's desire to heal and restore us, and expresses the Father's desire to be with us forever. And he invites us into the family. Here's an interesting fact. In all the existing books of the Old Testament, and in all existing books of extra-biblical Jewish writings, dating from the beginning of Judaism all the way up until the 10th century A.D., There is not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father. He was called the father of the children of Israel in the Bible, but no one person said, God is my father. And no one person addressed God as father. First Jewish rabbi to call God father directly was? Jesus. Exactly, Jesus of Nazareth. It was a radical departure from tradition. And in fact, in every single recorded prayer we have from the lips of Jesus, except one. Jesus calls God Father. It was for that reason that many of Jesus' enemies, they sought to kill him. They thought it was blasphemy that he claimed to have this intimate personal relationship with the sovereign God of heaven. And he dared to speak in such intimate family terms with God. And it talks about that in the Bible. John 5.18 says, For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What's even more radical is that Jesus says to us, when you pray, say our father. That's the Lord's prayer. Calling God father by scripture's notation is to claim we're in his family and in a way on his plane, equal to him yet. Jesus Christ, God the Son, instructs us to do so. The disciples asked him, he said, how should we pray? he said, first off, start off by saying, our Father. Call God Father. He has given us the right and the privilege to come into the presence of God and address him as Father because he is our Father. He has adopted us into his family and made us co-heirs with Jesus when we put our faith in him. Now, Why did Jesus have to come to earth and do all of this stuff to add us to the family? Couldn't we just pray to God the Father, ask for our sins to be forgiven, and then we're in the family and everything's right with the world? No. Why? Because forgiveness and salvation are two totally different things. Remember, our sin broke everything. So... Here's an analogy. It's like if your dad gave you a private jet for your birthday, yay! There are a lot of uh, televangelists, that's a real dream for them. All right. um, He said, your dad gives you this this jet, he's like, happy birthday, but don't push this button while you're in flight or the engines are going to drop off. Okay. Not going to address the poor design choice for that button, even existing, but you take off. And halfway through the flight, you kind of start thinking, I don't really like being told what to do, and I doubt the engine's really going to drop off. I mean, who would even design a plane that way? And so you press the button. The engines detach, and they careen to Earth, and now your jet is going to crash. Quickly, you pull out your cell phone. You call your dad and say, I have made a terrible mistake. I'm sorry. I pushed the button you told me not to. I'm about to die here. Please forgive me. He responds and says, okay, I'm disappointed. i am hurt that you didn't trust me, but I forgive you. Our relationship is restored, and I will never hold this against you. Your relationship's mended. Does that fix the plane? No, you are still going to plummet to your death. When we sin against God and ask forgiveness for our sins, we are forgiven. But it can't just end there. In order to be back in right standing with God, we need salvation because we're still busted. We need to be regenerated into a non-broken person. Our old self was dead and broken, so we have to be what Jesus called in the Bible, born again, renewed completely as a gift of grace that he gives us. He doesn't just forgive us. He flies up and saves us from our doomed plane, like Dwayne Johnson in an action movie, tearing us free from the the airliner that's going to crash. He puts us on a brand new private jet. But he does have to sacrifice himself to get us on the new plane. That's the depth of the love that he has for us. And he was sent by Father God to do that. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to save us. This points again to the truth and the love of the Trinity. Why? Because, forget about my goofy analogy with the rock for a second. If God the Father and God the Son are two entirely separate entities, sending Jesus to die for humanity is perverse. We often hear comparisons to the sacrifice of Christ, like you have a death sentence, and Jesus comes and he bails you out. He takes your place, and he dies so that you can go free. That's a sound analogy. But think, if you committed some really heinous death penalty awful crime like mass murder or buying Kesha tickets, and the (laughs) president or the king or ruler of your area said, you know what, because I love you so much, I'm going to set you free, and I'm going to send my kid to die in your place. Go on, boy. Well, you're kind of self-protecting there you know that doesn't seem like an ultimate sacrifice sounds like something an insane sadistic dictator would do not the act of a loving god but if god the son is fully god and god the father is fully god that's a real sacrifice he is giving himself in both cases that only works if the trinity is true God the Father says, I love you so much, I'm giving my son as a sacrifice. God the Son says, I love you so much, I'm giving myself as a sacrifice. We're agreed on this thing. 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Yes, this was the will of the Father, but Jesus, it was his will too. It was the will of the Son. Jesus showed his love for us by willingly laying down his life. Right before he goes to the cross, he even rebukes Peter for even suggesting that he not lay down his life. Jesus struggled with it. He was tortured by the thought of going through with it, knowing the real torture that was to come, yet he still sacrificed his life for ours entirely of his own accord. He was tortured, he was crucified, he was killed. He paid the price for our sins. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead. The Bible says the Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead. The Holy Spirit did that. Again, Trinity, essential. Because without a triune God, if Jesus is just the only God, just in a different form, there would be no other power strong enough to raise Christ from the dead. Because Jesus laid everything down on the cross. If there was no Trinity, the story ends with the death of Jesus. But there is a Trinity, and now he's back. And he shares his victory over death and sin with us. We now get to defeat death and live eternally by riding on his coattails. He invited us on. So if you ever had like siblings or friends and you did like blanket rides around the house on like the hardwood or the linoleum, eternity's going to be as fun as that, except nobody's going to get bucked off and crack their head open on the corner of the dining room table. So rejoice. But there's more. Salvation is not only about accepting Jesus to avoid hell. To avoid an eternity apart from god jesus also gave us instructions on how to live our lives to love each other well because he loves us and he wants us to love each other he wants us to experience his presence here on earth he wants us to fully understand who we were created to be and to find joy in god why because he loves us john 17 24 through 26 says father i want those you have given me to be with me where i am and to see my glory The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father. Notice how many times he's saying, Father. Though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. And that I myself may be in them. Christianity is not just about changing bad habits and living better. It is about knowing God, to know him, to take joy in knowing him. That's what we're saved for. And that's why Jesus came. Yes, he gave instructions on how we should live. Yes, he healed and he did some amazing miracles. But over and over again, Jesus kept telling the disciples, he came here to show them God, the father. So they wouldn't just worship him, but know him. Be in the family. We cannot allow ourselves to underestimate the importance of that point. Here's one of the verses in the Bible that also emphasizes it. Matthew 7, 21 through 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drag out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. He's not just looking for obedience. In Luke 8.28, we see how there's a demon-possessed man who obeys Jesus. The demons speak to Jesus. They acknowledge he's God the Son. They call him by his rightful title. They bow down before him. Then they obey his commands. We see that even the devil can seem submitted to God. But there's no relationship there. Obedience to God is not the end all be all. We have to know him. And he invites us to do that. Knowing him is to know true, overflowing, absolute love. Every person of the Trinity is love. God loves you. God the Father loves you. God the Son loves you. The Holy Spirit thinks you're just okay. (laughs) Okay. No, no. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you more than you've ever loved anything. More than anybody has ever loved you, ever. Even yo mama. He loves you. True story. Uh, I need to not say things like yo mama. All right. Well, um, <laughs> too white. Um, <laughs> where was it? All right, so. The person of Jesus, God the Son, shows us how far God will go to prove his love for us and provide us a way to be near him forever. There is nothing he would not do to show his love for you. And I'm going to say that again. The person of Jesus, God the Son, shows us how far God will go to prove his love for us and provide a way for us to be near him forever. There is nothing he wouldn't do to show his love for you. Okay, so let's say you get that. Jesus came to earth. He sacrificed himself. He rescued us. Then he ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of the Father God forever. So now what? Is he done? Well, we, we read the Gospels to find out what Jesus did here on earth. After he ascended into heaven, if we want to know what Jesus is doing on earth right now, we look at the church. The church is the story of Jesus here now. But we're not just supposed to watch what he's doing. We're not just supposed to be spectators. He's called us to be part of his work. He's chosen every single one of us, every one of you, to be part of it. He's given each one of us specific gifts that we are to use within the church to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And the way we do that is with the help of the Holy Spirit which Pastor Andy is going to be speaking about next week at the retreat. So, come get part three. Hopefully there will be fewer Austin Powers references. Anyway, if you have not yet received the salvation that Jesus offers, if you have not yet known God or started the journey of knowing God, if you've not yet felt like you've received that love, if you want to know that you're not just forgiven for your sins, but that you're reborn, you're regenerated. What's broken in you gets fixed and you're made right with God, eternally saved. Please, we're going to have some people up front as we do this last worship song. We would love for you to come forward and talk to somebody. We would love to pray with you and help get you in a new private chat. (laughs) Figuratively speaking. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you for showing us love, proving to us how much you love us. That every person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you never stop loving us and seeking us out. We thank you for that, God. And we ask that you would continue to draw our hearts to you, continue helping us to know you better. be who you want us to be, who you designed us to be, to step into the kind of life that you have in store for us, so that we may know you better and know your love better. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.